0: Welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich. Great to have you aboard. Certainly people of a certain age, but film comedy fans, of course, know the names Ma and Pa Kettle, a series of highly successful B pictures featuring an unlikely married couple, the Kettles, and their slew of kids living in the backwoods. Well, one husband and wife team have made the definitive study of the Ma and Pa Kettle phenomenon. They are Lon and Deborah Davis, and they present their book, Ma and Pa Kettle on Film, and it's loads of fun. So, lovers of film, get set to learn and laugh with me as I welcome one half of the dynamic writing duo. Here's Lon Davis joining us on mic. Let's focus on Ma and Pa Kettle. I was amazed, first of all, at the success. I didn't know they did that many films. But before we get there, i got to tell you, there's a little diner. I don't know if it's still around, but it was part of my youth, and I used to drive by it all the time. I don't think I ever attended it near Boston, not far, called The Egg and I. I I never put two and two together until I read your book. Tell us about The Egg and I, the book, first of all.
1: The Egg and I uh, came out in 1945. It was written by a wonderful writer named Betty McDonald, and she was someone who had lived the experiences that she wrote about. She had been on a chicken farm with her first husband, Bob Heskett, around 1930, and this is just before the Depression, and she had a very rough, rough go. It was in the Pacific Northwest in in Seattle, near Seattle, Washington. And she was absolutely miserable. She hated the climate of, of Washington with its constant rain and wind and cold. And she was more or less an unpaid uh, hand, you know, farm hand. And she was worked almost to death by this husband of hers who wasn't a good guy. He uh, became an alcoholic and uh, they loved to make moonshine. And this, of course, resulted in some bad behavior on his part. He was abusive to her, and even though they did have two children, after a few years of marriage and enduring this, she decided to leave him. And years later, she was known for her funny stories about living on this chicken farm. I guess it was such a bad experience that she had to find the humor in it in order to process it. And people would just sit there and laugh and and say, you know, uh, Betty, you've got to put this in a book. And so many people say that and so many people intend to do it, but she actually sat down at her kitchen table uh, and wrote in longhand this entire book. And it came out very beautifully, and she sent it in, and it was published uh, by a major press in 1945 and became an instant bestseller, selling over a million copies Mm. in 1945.
0: That's amazing and not there long after of course comes the movie naturally and this is where we start to visit in with the kettles. You've got Claudette Colbert and Fred McMurray and Fred McMurray's playing the husband, a nicer version of the husband I might add. Yes, Uh, (laughs) much nicer. And the movie Lawn is a hit I take it.
1: The movie is is huge. In fact it's bigger than the book. It, Mm. It had a universal appeal and it opened in 1947 and it had of course it introduced the characters of Monpa Kettle um, a farm couple who were based on actual neighbors that that uh, Betty and Bob had when they were living in 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 the um, chicken farm right. these were uh, the family of Uh, mother and father known as Ma and Pa Bishop had 13 kids and their place was a mess and the personalities were of course exaggerated to become Ma and Pa Kettle in the book the portrayals of those characters in the movie were vastly more sympathetic and pleasant than, let's say, the characters in the original book. Right. I wasn't taken at all with their characters, and I don't know if you would be either. Mm. Especially when you come to know Ron Paul Kettle, a- a- embodied by Marjorie Maine and Percy Kilbride, there's something special about those two. They're lovable characters. And the actors were so incredibly good that they really breathed, life into these two characters, not caricatures, if I may emphasize, but real characters, people that you, would, when an audience would watch them, they think, I can imagine hmm. being a neighbor to those people. I would love to know them. They're very welcoming. They're, they'll help you out if, if in any way that they can. They're always looking out after other people. And they're good, really good people. Yeah. And of course, the fact that they're hilarious is funny. Um, made audiences sit up and take notice, so much so that Monpa Kettles sort of ran Claudia Colbert and Fred McMurray off the screen. Uh, people thought, well, they're okay, but I really loved the Kettles. Whenever they would come on the screen, audiences would sit up a little bit straighter and have a big smile on their face, and they thought, this is what I want to see. The Kettles were only in, I think it was 21 minutes of this two-hour film. And it was, it, it made such an impact that people would continually return to the theater to see this film just for those characters.
0: Let's examine now what happens after the film The Agonize a hit, and these are the two breakout characters that everybody wants to see more of. Who takes it to the next step and comes up with a movie for them alone? Who was that?
1: That was Leonard Goldstein. And he was a very uh, thoughtful producer. By that, I mean he was very much in- invested in his projects. He was a person of great enthusiasm, and he had a passion for the characters of mon Pa Kettle. And it was he who would go to these previews of The Egg and I and observe the audience. And it was his observations that I referred to earlier about sitting up straighter and laughing so much when they were on And he took note of this and he he thought this would make a great series of B films. And he became the producer and the actors liked him very much and, in fact, Percy Kilbride thought he was indispensable to the series, which indeed he was. Unfortunately, he died um, quite young and in the midst of of the series and it was taken over by other producers. But that was definitely his baby.
0: It's, it's fascinating to think that movies like that would not only be popular, but would make so much money, the B movies. I think you said the first independent film made over $2 bucks, which is huge yes. dough in those days, isn't it, Lon?
1: Oh, well, you have to multiply everything by 10,
0: essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: If you want an idea of how much it would be today, you like a movie that grows $20 million, uh, that would be substantial. And $2 million, it was unheard of for a film that cost just about 300000 to make. <laughs> so Universal, the executives were over the moon with the idea that they can crank out these pictures quickly with these experienced stars who, frankly, were underpaid. And, in fact, Marjorie Maine was a contract player for MGM. And she was, for the entire time, the series was being made. And she was hired by MGM as a, like I said, as a contract player. She would be in whatever films uh, she was told to be in, like maybe in St. Louis and the Harvey Girls and uh, Summerstock and a lot of wonderful musicals and straight comedies as well. And after doing this for um, a long time, and she was not a star, she was a, dependable character actress. People recognized her. And they liked her. I'm sure a lot of people didn't even know her name. They just thought, oh, I like this actress. And she, when she was given the script for The Agonized, uh, she took it and she was paid the same amount that she was getting as a contract player at MGM. That was the only, that was the only salary she received. She wasn't paid by Universal. She was They had worked out a deal, a loan out, and she never received a raise. She never got a bonus in spite of the fact that without her, there wouldn't have been a series. In addition, she was so good in the part and so prepared when she took it that she won, she received an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. This, of course, probably didn't fit well with Planet Colbert either, but <laughs> who would think that Ma Kettle yeah. would you know, be nominated for an Academy Award? That's how good she was.
0: It's interesting when you talk about the studio system, people don't know what we're talking about if they're... Only concerned with the the 2000s and the current-day Hollywood. But yeah, they th- it, wouldn't have a clue how different it was. Oh, my goodness, and the moguls really controlled everything, and they could loan you out. And a lot of the stars, people thought were making huge money. They weren't. Let's talk about Marjorie Maine because she's the central figure, Ma Kettle. Then we'll talk about Percy. Uh, interesting background, married at a young age, husband dies, he's an older man, dies early, and then she's never with anyone again, apparently, or pretty much... Yeah, well, Family-less.
1: there's been speculation as to her um, private life that I didn't uh, delve into in the book, but uh, she, they said she had a uh, a female partner for mm-hmm. a good deal of her life. I don't know whether that's true, uh, but the I do know she was married uh, to a man who was a very well-known lecturer, uh, a medical person, a doctor, and he would go around making that was his primary job, and Marjorie was so dedicated to this gentleman that she stopped her acting career and it was going well on Broadway. and uh, she thought, I'm going to book his appearances, I'll be his secretary's general factotum." And she eventually got tired of it. She thought, "I didn't think I'd be running this whole show." and he got to utter nerves, and basically they separated. They stayed married, but they they didn't live together for many years of their of their relationship. Mm. Uh, in 1935, this man who was much older than she contracted cancer, and Marjorie nursed him um, through through that disease until his passing, uh, unti- untimely passing. And according to many sources, she was devastated, including, I mean, by her own words, she, she said it was losing a member of my family. And Marjorie didn't have much family. She had no brothers and sisters. She had very, she just, she was a lonely individual. And this was her only marriage. And she kept him around, so to speak. For years afterward, she would speak to him yeah. Uh, in the presence of other people.
0: That was interesting. And, tell, tell the story about on the set what would happen. She would.
1: Well, yes, yeah, she would be standing there, and uh, right in the middle of a scene, she would look up and say, Yes, darling. Okay, of course, yes, I understand. Thank you. Very good. And then the director said, Marjorie, who, what are you talking about? What are you doing? You know, caught essentially. Hmm. Oh, I'm just t- talking to my husband. He gave me some advice. Yes. And she wasn't kidding. Um, Maybe she was delusional. Maybe she was spiritual. I don't know. I mean, she believed that he was with her. She would go into the commissary and she would order, you know, like a sandwich for herself and get some egg salad for, you know, for him, you know. And she'd say to the waitresses, aren't you going to say hello to my husband? Mm. You know my husband. My goodness. People looked at her like she had two heads.
0: And yet, as and, you point out, she, she was the ultimate professional on the set. I mean, she knew her lines. She knew her blocking. She knew what was happening every step of the way, didn't she?
1: Every step. She was a classically trained Shakespearean actor, and she took that experience to the films. And even though she was playing a backwards kind of a character, she brought so much depth it and so much believability. People think well that's small Kettle. No, it's Marjorie Maine is a, a complex individual, mm. quite intelligent, very disciplined, eccentric is all, get out. <laughs> and that is a strange thing. And she had other um, unusual quirks as well. But yeah. she never but she never took off a day. Even when she was very ill. Uh, and she was plagued with things like a bladder condition and sinus infections that were chronic. And she was there every day, no matter what, and knew her lines, knew everybody else's lines. She was not particularly warm with her co-stars. When they would call cut, she'd go straight to her trailer, and there she would stay until somebody came and got her for the next uh, next yeah. shot. And that's the way she was. She was very much an introvert.
0: In those days, obviously. you had a lot of you had a lot of character actors and actresses who looked old before their time. I mean, Marjorie Main always True. appears to be matronly or middle aged. The others in that list would include, uh, I don't know, Marie Dressler and uh, Beulah Bondi, and maybe Margaret Dumont. That kind of person, and they were perfect for the roles, whatever they played. Marjorie, one of the best, no question
1: exactly I couldn't agree with you more. She wasn't all that young though I mean, she was born in eighteen ninety so when she first uh when she was offered the egg and I, she was about um fifty six i think yeah. yeah and to she stayed with the series until she was sixty seven She certainly looked every bit her age and then some
0: well that'll that'll the, be fifteen children will do that to you, my friend.
1: Well, it would. That's true. I think it makes sense. The other thing that was really strange is that Marjorie aged exponentially uh, through those years, of course, from 1947 to 1956. But she was, they would still have in the films, and I don't understand this, little children in the family, which would mean that this elderly woman had given birth like a mere six years earlier. And I. That's kind of stretching cred- uh, cred- credibility, I think, but I guess they found that I, I, I would have if I had been scripting it, I would have had the kids grow up and be a regular age, but apparently they wanted that element of you know kind of the rowdy kids coming screaming into the house when she called, "Come and get it," you know mm. I think that it was it was unbelievable, but it was it was a formula that worked, and once something works in Hollywood. <laughs> you repeat it until it's milk-dry.
0: We're talking with Lon Davis. He and his wife, Deborah, have written Ma and Pa Kettle on film, and it's really uh, really a treat because if you love old movies and Hollywood of yesteryear and personalities like the kind we're talking about, this is a book for you. Percy Kilbride is Pa Kettle. It reminds me of Stan Laurel in many respects, but tell me a little bit about Percy Kilbride. Was he... What kind of an actor was he prior to the Paw Kettle series?
1: Well, Paw Kettle, uh, Percy Kilbride, I should say, was another uh, product of the stage. He started when he was extremely young. He was working uh, as a ticket taker or as an usher in a theater in his hometown of San Francisco when he was 11 years old. And very early on, he was accepted into a, a company and he appeared on stage in hundreds of different roles. Because of his versatility and because of the fun that he felt acting was, and that's creating a fresh character, he was very discontented being typecast as Paul Kettle and playing the same laconic character over and over again. It did not appeal to him as an actor. The problem was, of course, He was so associated with those films and that character that he wasn't offered any other parts, either on stage or in other movies. Right. He would make basically that one film a year and sit around and wait for the next one. And he was discontent terribly. Um, He just, he was a, a very intelligent guy. And you're right about the Stan Laurel similarity, although I don't think I've ever put that together. He's thin-faced, he's got the derby, and he's very passive-seeming, and all traits of Stan Laurel's character. Percy, though, was unlike Marjorie Maine in that he was extremely sociable on the set. He loved people, loved to talk with people. He was not a married man, never had been, and he had basically spent his life going from one part to another, and he was Very, very respected and even loved by the actors who um, were fortunate enough to work with them. And I've spoken to a number of the individuals who played Vaughn Paul Kettle's kids and they all said the same thing. They all said Marjorie Maine was aloof and Percy Kilbride was a delight. And that is nice to know. What is also nice to me, I think, is the fact that they, so often you hear about, you know, actors who are paired together, people like uh, Marie Dressler and Wallace Beery or John Bunny and Flora Finch, if you're really going back. These people detested each other, absolutely detested each other. Marjorie Maine and Percy Kilbride had the infinite respect for the other's Abilities and professionalism, and they yeah. made that known to the press all the time. They really—they were not close. They never socialized off camera. They never saw each other off camera. And after Percy retired, they never got together again. However, his memory um, stayed with her, and she was devastated when when he when he died in the tragic way he did in 1964. And she always spoke glowingly of him, which Mm. is very touching,
0: I think. I have to jump in and ask you about Wallace Beery because you mentioned him not getting along with Marie Dressler. He had trouble with Marjorie or Marjorie with him. Sounds like he was a rather irascible, difficult chap. Am I right?
1: He was a a dreadful individual, frankly. He was a, a marvelous actor, or he would never have been tolerated those who work for them, have horror stories. Mm. He was a, a very abusive man, particularly to women, although he was bu- abusive in his own ways to men. I remember reading an interview with Robert Young, and he said that making a film with him was humiliating. You, you remember the film The Champ?
0: Of course, yeah. Uh,
1: with uh, Jackie, um,
0: Jackie Cooper. Coop, Jackie Cooper, right, right.
1: Yeah, Jackie Cooper was doing the scene, and of course, you know, he was supposed to be just, in love with this old, you know, irascible man, like you said, who was lovable, and he would be, you know, holding on to him and crying and stuff. I mean, it was a very, a pretty sappy movie, I thought, but when this, uh, when the director would call cut, and if Jackie Cooper had his arms around him or something, Wallace Berry would just push him off and, get off me, kid, you know? That's the kind of man he was.
0: Oh, man. Wow. And,
1: uh, you know, and Marjorie just, re- I mean, she was such a, 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 an agreeable presence with her co-stars, but he wouldn't cooperate with her. He wouldn't rehearse in such a way that he would know his lines well. He would learn the basic message behind the lines and then ad-lib it. Marjorie, on the other hand, being classically trained, Knew every single word of the dialogue, and she stuck to it. And so her timing, which was extraordinary, was thrown off because she didn't know when to jump in with Wallace Berry. And she made so many films—I think seven films—with him, of about as many as she made with Percy Kilbride, interestingly enough. Mm. And they did have a great rapport on screen, Berry and Maine. And uh, she did make films, and they were very popular with the public. And, but still, she she just had nothing good to say about him. And it was a real career low light, you might say.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, to
1: have worked with him so much at MGM.
0: Right. Let me ask you then about Percy retiring. We know that. He didn't finish the series, and uh, they had to pull a Darren Stevens replacement yeah. kind of thing. And they replaced Pa Kettle in the film The Kettles on Old McDonald's Farm, 1957, with an actor by the name of Parker, Parker, Fennelly. Parker Fennelly. Now, that name means very little to most people, except for those old enough to remember the Pepperidge Farm commercials, right? Because he was the yes. Pepperidge Farm guy. Because Pepperidge Farm remembers. Remember, you hear
1: Pe- he would, with his New England accent, and right. Pepperidge Farm remembers. So something.
0: he he's cast in the role, and it's so tough for an actor to play another actor's role. You know, even Batman is. It's difficult to buy different guys doing that. But uh, right. that that uh, had to be a challenge for him. He did a decent job, but there was no replacing Percy in that role.
1: That's it. He was actually a, a, an ideal choice. Um, he was as probably close to Percy Kilbride as a character could be, um, both with the even though Percy Kilbride was from California, and uh, Parker Fennelly was from New England, uh, they both spoke with a New England accent, oddly enough, and he looked the part, he did the best he could. He was a man with comic chops, there's no question, because he had been on the radio. For years, you will certainly remember, um, or having heard or seen or read about, Alan's Alley, which was a a routine that Fred Allen would do every week on his show, where he would visit these um, various eccentric individuals representing different ethnicities. And Titus Moody, who was the character played by Parker Fennelly, was a... A, like an old codger, basically, who was totally out of touch with things. So when they were looking for a replacement for Percy Kilbride, they thought of him. And there was just, in spite of Marjorie Maine being the actress she was and Parker Fennelly being the professional he was, there was just no rapport between them, and it didn't seem believable. And sometimes you can replace an actor in a part, like Darren you mentioned, And other times, it just is impossible. There's nothing like the original. And there was another film made, of course, in 1956 called The Kettles of the Ozarks. And in that one, the male lead was played by Arthur Honeycutt, who was portraying Paul Kettles' brother, Sedge. And that didn't work either. But if, if either had caught on, Marjorie Maine would have been willing to continue making those films indefinitely because she loved to act,
0: yeah, no, it was a it was a gig that that she became famous for worldwide. and and like as you point out, the films started to die out in popularity in terms of numbers, but they were popular for a long time. I al- also wanted to mention the children. and there were a couple of names that popped out uh, actors young in their careers, including Richard Long, who went on to what the Big Valley and also yes. And nanny also and the, the nanny professor. and the professor. I loved him. And also uh, an actress that you have to be a real geek for this one, Sherry Jackson, who played one of the sexiest androids on Star Trek at one point.
1: Yes. Uh, now, I've got a friend of mine, named Barry, who is still in love with that woman ever since he saw her step out of the shower on the Wild Wild West in 1967. Oh, she is and
0: gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. She's
1: gorgeous. I got a chance to interview her for the book, and... She was very suspicious, like, how did you get this number and everything? And I said, well, I, we got it from a friend of mine who found you in this way. And, and I, I thought she was going to hang up. Uh, but she, instead, she stayed on the phone with me and she told me a story about Marjorie Maine that uh, did not reflect too well on the actress. But this, you know, we know that Marjorie was germaphobic, she was terrified of the idea of getting sick. And she was practicing social distancing and wearing face masks and whatnot, you know, 50, 60 years before COVID. And that was the way she just perceived life. She was just terrified. And at one and starring with a bunch of kids on set in a closed studio with uncirculating air made her very nervous because she thought, you never know what these kids are carrying and they could get me ill. So she would try to keep her distance. But naturally, while they're filming scenes, she'd be all over them. She'd be having her arm around them or whatever. And she was doing one scene with this little boy playing one of her kids. The little boy sneezed on her. And she turned to the director and said, the kid's out. You know? And sure enough, he was ushered off the set and fired. And uh, I remember in Sherry Jackson was, Appalled by that, hmm. uh, she doesn't really remember those films too well. She was a really cute little girl, but my God, she was a gorgeous adult. I had never heard of her until I researched the book, and uh, like I said, my friend was going on and on about her, and I saw pictures of her, and I could see why.
0: <laughs> yeah, in the nineteen sixties, she was as smoking hot as any woman on uh, network TV. Uh, of course, in I the I think you're right in in the book too. Uh, before we close out, there are some wonderful uh, character actors that you note uh, appeared in various films, guys like uh, Russell Johnson, the professor, of course, on Gilligan, and uh, Ray Collins shows up. Uh, Lieutenant Trask, I believe, from Perry Mason?
1: Lieutenant Tragg.
0: Tragg, Trag, of course, right, right. And I, I got a kick out of seeing all these names and photos. Well,
1: was, you know, and uh, Ray Collins, I mean, talk about a man with extraordinary experience. I mean, he was... of the Mercury um, players for Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. Of course, he was in Citizen Kane. He was in a lot of films, and he always was brilliant in them. He was a first-rate actor. Orson Welles, in fact, called him the best actor he had ever known or Mm. worked with. Mm. And I, I don't know, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily know or go that far, but then... I didn't work with a man. If right. I had, I'd probably share that opinion. Right, he was right. wonderful playing uh, the in- one of the in-laws of Ma and pa, and the, their daughter married the character played by Richard Long, and they were a a very snooty, um, upper-class couple, and at first extremely put off by Ma and Kettle, but they eventually came to love them, and they showed that... Uh, evolution you might say in the series over a period of time and it was a very instead of just thinking with like a formula of always thinking oh these people are such a you know such a nightmare they really really liked them and they looked out for them they were protective of them and one of the best films in the series i think is mon on vacation where the four of them go to paris and uh, it's it's a wonderfully
0: funny movie. Mm. Yeah, uh, I wanted to just close with this. I, it seems, though, to me that American audiences at that point, right after the war, they were hungry and thirsty for fun, and, and but they also wanted to feel comfort with the characters. And there's something special about backwoods, rural characters that we all either know or think we know that's very, very American. And I'm thinking of, uh, you know, uh, Henry Fonda in... Uh, of Grapes of wrath Grapes of wrath. Uh, I'm thinking of the Waltons for crying out loud. Uh, it seems yes. it seems as though that is always going to hit a very popular chord with American audiences, well, no I matter think
1: because when. It, there's a basic decency ascribed to these characters. Mm-hmm. And it's something that people want to believe of their fellow man, that there are people that could be trusted, there are people who uh, would do anything for them, that they could would would take care of them when they were sick or whatever. I mean, it's what we all need. We all want to be reassured and comforted by another source. Yeah, And that is something that they got across very, very well. A lot of the, some of the films have, you know, their slapstick scenes and stuff, but there are always these moments where you could tell that these people are real people. and And I think that the whole rustic thing or backwards thing kind of gets down to the essence of of human nature. And I really believe that that need for escapism, particularly after something as traumatic as four years of war and all of the terrible tragedies that took place and all the loss that people experienced, then to have these films come around and they aren't military-based they aren't message they, pictures. They're not hitting anything over the head. They're just funny and light and cute. And there's a reason why all these years later the films are so timeless, and that people can watch them again and again, like you and I did when we were young.
0: Oh, absolutely! Watching them
1: on TV, <laughs> it was it was indescribable how pleasant those films
0: were. They were they were absolutely mind candy, and yet I think you say. So well in the book, and you just said it now. You could tell the characters had decency and warmth, and and they cared for each other. And one more aspect I think that is true of a lot of comedy in the era we're talking about post-depression. It was nice to stick it to the city slicker. It was always nice yes. to outwit the because the dim wits, as they were referred to, usually outwit the the rich, pompous. You know, wise guys who thought they knew it all. I love that about it, yeah, and these I films.
1: think that even and I think there's a juvenile appeal um there too uh, that I've never really put together. But why would kids you know like i was I was raised in the suburbs, I knew nothing about farms and you know, and tons of kids in a family and all that kind of stuff. that was all foreign. But there's something that kids can relate to, just like you relate to Abbott and Costello um meeting Frankenstein and and Dracula, you know, you think I'd be terrified too, maybe not as terrified as this guy, so you feel a little bit superior. And I think the kids often feel very, at least I know I did, felt very oppressed. And the idea of, like, winning over an authority figure was inherently desirable, and they embodied that kind of -of fish-out-of-water behavior perfectly.
0: The book is called Ma and Pa Kettle on Film, uh, all new, funnier than ever. I love that. Uh, by Lon, our guest, and his lovely wife, Deborah Davis. Uh, and it's really a, a movie lover's treasure trove of uh, character actors and storylines and uh, how movies get made. And uh, and really a bygone era that's nice to reminisce about. Uh, Lon, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And we'll definitely do this again because you're a man of many subjects I want to delve into. <laughs>
1: oh, Jordan, nothing could make me happier. I have enjoyed being on your show, and I hope to be on it again um, repeatedly.
0: Oh, Lon Davis, you will indeed be back soon with another deep dive, this time into the highly intellectual, stimulating story of that triad that changed the world, The Three Stooges. Stay tuned for that. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Switch Media, to Ken Carberry and our team at Chart Productions in Boston. And, of course, thanks to all of my listeners and new ones joining us all the time for subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing the podcast. We're now heard in close to 100 countries and in just about every state in the union. That is, if Wyoming has finally come around. So, as always, we close by saying be well so you can do good. Take care.